Let's open in a word of prayer before we dive into what we're going to be talking about this morning. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to come and share your word, um, this teaching that Jesus gives us in this passage. It can be difficult. And so, Holy Spirit, would you just guide our conversation, guide our thoughts about this passage, open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say through us, or through this text today. This text reveals something beautiful for us, and yet also something difficult and tense. So, Father, would you guide us in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this series, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. You can start turning there in your Bible. And last week, we were going through righteousness. Ed was teaching to us about righteousness. And this week, we're picking up on that idea and we're building upon this idea of righteousness. So what does it say? We're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, verse 21 through 26, and what does it say in verse 20, right before the section we're looking at? Jesus says, unless our righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, that's a hard teaching. And so what does Jesus do today in the passage we're looking at? He takes that idea and says, okay, What does it mean for our righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees? What does that look like? Teach us, Jesus. Explain to us what that means. And luckily for us, that's what he's doing today. So Jesus picks out one of the Ten Commandments as an example for us. What is the righteousness, obeying the law, greater than the Pharisees? What does it look like? Well, let's just pick one of the Ten Commandments. And we would expect him to pick maybe coveting, um, honor your father and mother, remember the Sabbath, something that we maybe are struggling with as we walk in the door this morning. He picks murder. Do not murder. That's the first thing that comes to mind when he thinks of what does it mean to have righteousness greater than the Pharisees. So think to yourself, have you fulfilled this law? Is this something that, you know, I think, I think I've got under control. What's interesting is the crowd that Jesus is talking to as he's giving this sermon, this teaching, is a group of Jews. And they're not cold-blooded murderers. They would have come into this and said, murder? Shouldn't you be talking about one of the other Ten Commandments? I think I've got this one down. And if that's how you're feeling, this sermon and this passage is speaking directly to you. You'll notice that he says you a lot even in this passage and the people he's talking to about 20 times. He's directly applying what he's saying to anyone who states I've never committed murder. So a roadmap of where we're going. What are we gonna be learning about today? The text, we're gonna break it up into three sections and work our way through it. The first section is gonna define the law for us. Jesus is gonna give us an explanation and identify what is the law exactly of do not murder. Then he's gonna go on and give us two illustrations of what he's explaining. So we're gonna look at the definition, 
illustrations, and then we're gonna ask the question, how do we follow this law today? How do we apply it? What are the general applications for us in this auditorium right now? And the theme of this entire sermon and this passage, don't forget, what does it mean to have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees? That's the question in the back of our minds as we look at this today. So let's dive into our first segment of this passage. Matthew chapter five, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what does it mean to have righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees? Well, the first thing that Jesus does here is he draws a separation between himself and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying, you have heard it say, do not commit murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, commits an insult against his brother, says you fool. He's drawing a separation but he's not creating a different law. He's not stating a new law. He's giving a different interpretation of what the law actually says. So Jesus essentially restates what the law is three different times. We do this all the time. If someone says something to you and you don't quite understand what they said, what do they do? They repeat the same message over again, but sometimes they use different words. They might use a different verb, or you, you didn't quite get it that first time, let me explain it in a little bit different way, but say the exact same thing. That's what he's doing. He restates the law three times. He even repeats the same words and structure. And we're gonna notice this as we look a little bit closer at this. And if you don't catch exactly what Jesus is doing with the definition of what it means, do not murder, don't worry he kind of recognizes that we're gonna struggle with this and he gives two illustrations. So let's take a look at the command itself. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And Jesus makes his first statement, he essentially restates that, that command and says whoever is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Notice that he's actually using the exact same words, will be liable to judgment, that is the identical phrase, the exact same words. And whoever, everyone who, those are the same thing. What's changing between these two? He's saying murder and equating it to angry with his brother. He's just restating the command, except with a little bit different language, explaining it to us, what does this mean? He goes on, and in case you didn't get it the first time, he restates it again, a second statement. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, and this time he changes the consequence a little bit, the counsel. What's the difference between judgment and counsel? Essentially, it's this idea that the judgment is like you go to your local court, you go to the Oregon City courthouse. The counsel is the, um, the supreme counsel of that area the Sanhedrin. So it'd be like going from the Oregon City Courthouse to the Supreme Court. 
There's a growing intensity there. What happens when Jesus states it the third time? Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Will be sent to Sheol, is the word he uses there. And it's this idea in the Jewish minds of the ultimate punishment. They lock you up and throw away the key. So the consequences seem to be gaining in intensity as he restates this statement over and over of what this law means and explains it. And what happens with the actual action itself? It goes from murder to angry with his brothers to insults his brothers to says you fool. Commentators kind of struggle with this because there seems to be a major increase in intensity from statement two to three But what is the action? Is the action getting much, much worse? Essentially, it's an insult, right? What's the difference between those two? Both of them are just insults. Who's it to? In statement two, the insult is to your brother. In statement three, the insult's just to a stranger, a random person. we would commonly view that the opposite way, that the worst one is to our brother. So this statement that Jesus is making through here and this definition that he's given us, murder, what is murder? It's being angry with your brother. Murder is insulting your brother. Murder is saying you fool. Whoa. This is pretty intense. Jesus' claims are pretty radical in this section. But remember, he's not stating a new law. He's turning to the Jewish, the conservative Jewish people in his audience, the Pharisees in his audience, and saying, I have, not saying I have something new for you. He's saying you're not conservative enough. The people in his audience who would say, I am zealous for the law, he's replying, you're not zealous enough. Jesus doesn't change the law, he changes the degree to which it's followed. Do not be murder, do not murder. Don't be angry with your brother. Don't say you fool, don't insult another person. In case we were kind of struggling with that, that's a hard teaching. What does that look like exactly? Well, good news. Jesus gives us two illustrations of this idea, this definition that he just created that's a little bit overwhelming. He gives us two illustrations, and these two illustrations are kind of at the opposite ends of the spectrum. As we look at them, there's a little bit of whiplash going from one to the other, because in one illustration, he's gonna talk in relational terms. He's gonna say, your brother. He's gonna talk about an emotional hurt between you two and to reconcile that hurt that's causing anger. In the opposite end of the spectrum, the second illustration, it's gonna be legal terms. It's a court case. There's a judge. There's injustice. There's a prison. So it goes from relational hurt to legal court case injustice. So let's take a look at the first illustration. And it's gonna be Matthew chapter five, verses 23 through 24. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It's not immediately obvious in this passage, but there's a question that is critical to understanding this passage. If we don't ask this question, we will never understand this passage, this illustration. Here's the question. Who is angry in this passage? See, when I always read this passage before, I always thought to myself, so if I go to the altar and while I'm there, I remember that I am angry at my brother, I need to go and be reconciled with him. That's not what it says. That's not the one who's angry. If there, remember that your brother is angry at you, go and be reconciled. We're the ones at fault. We've offended someone else and they have something against us. The righteousness that Jesus is teaching, it's not only that anger is associated with murder, but that we're supposed to have concern for the anger that others have against us, that we've created. And notice the level of importance that Jesus gives to this law, this, this illustration. Pause your worship at the temple and go deal with this issue. That would be like me saying on tax day and you have your envelope with your tax payment and you're going to the post office to pay your taxes and you remember that your brother has something against you. Stop, leave your taxes and go be reconciled before you come back and pay your taxes. That's the level of importance that he's applying here. It's to stop whatever we're doing. This illustration that he's giving in verses 23 and 24, remember that this is, this is a Jewish audience. It involves Pharisees. They'd be very familiar with the Old Testament. And when Jesus brings up words like um, offering, brother, anger, murder, there's a very familiar allusion that he's making in the minds of his audience. And it's to Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter four. What happens in the Cain and Abel story? Their brothers both give offerings to God. God favors Abel's offering and Cain is angry. Cain murders Abel. This teaching, this illustration that Jesus is giving regarding do not murder is quite puzzling. Why is that? Because Jesus isn't turning to Cain and saying, do not murder. He's turning to Abel and saying, do not murder. Abel, if your brother has something against you and you come to give an offering, stop. Go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and give your offering. Jesus is teaching not just another rule to follow in this passage, I don't murder, check. It's an entire reorientation of the heart. Do I cause my brother anger? 
Will I stop what I'm doing for their sake, for our relationship? A righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. It's not more rules, it's a reorientation of our hearts. Let's take a look at our second illustration, verses 25 and 26. So remember that last illustration was the relational aspect and now we're kind of getting a little bit of whiplash as he immediately transitions over to the legal injustice illustration, the court illustration. So let's take a look at it, starting in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So again, we're faced with that critical question. Who is angry in this passage? Is it us? We're angry at someone else? No, it's someone else is angry at us. We are the ones who have caused someone else injustice. It doesn't explain what it was, the action that happened, what this injustice is. It could have been an accident. But when we're handed over to the judge, he finds us guilty. We're guilty of causing the injustice to someone else. If we cause the injustice, what are we supposed to do? If we take a look back at verse 25, the first part there, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Are we supposed to wait until we're thrown in jail to deal with the issue? Are we supposed to wait until we're forced to make it right? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to address the injustice along the way before we get to court. We're not forced to make things right. We desire to make things right. We want to right that injustice. We desire to mend those things that we have done to others. So are these illustrations that Jesus just gave the things that you think of when you think, do not murder? <laughs> Probably not, but what is he saying? He's saying reconcile relationships, make right injustice. Don't just stop with the action itself, but redeem the very source of murder. Heal the very cause of murder. This is the kind of righteousness that surpasses even the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't change the law, he changes the degree to which it's followed. So how do we do this? How do we do this? This is a pretty hard teaching of Jesus. Would you, are you expecting me to give you three easy steps now of, of how to apply this? Maybe it's six, maybe it's 10. Could we do it in 100? How do we do this? Can we do this? Is it even possible for us to do this? To redeem the very source of murder. And that's only one of the 10 commandments. 
that's the one we probably walked in and said, you know what, murder, that's probably not the one I'm struggling with today. I think I have this one under control. Is this even possible? That's the question we need to ask. Because remember, back in, in verse 20, that introduced this passage, what is Jesus saying in, in chapter five, verse 20? Unless our righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's only one person who has ever been able to fulfill this law. To reconcile relationships, to make right injustices, to redeem the very source of murder. And he's the one that's explaining this passage. Jesus fulfills the whole law. But why does he do it? So that he can place the crown that he has earned on us. A Christian has a righteousness that surpasses even the Pharisees, but it isn't our righteousness. Christianity is not about following another rule. It's a reorientation of our heart, our life. We reorient our heart, our desire, our trust towards Jesus. And through this reorientation, we are transformed to resemble Jesus, the Christ. We, are, we become Christ followers, many Christians, many Christs. Our lives resemble not just the letter of the law, but the heart of the law also. If you have started this transformation and started on this journey, what are some of the milepost markers that you're gonna see in this transformation, on this process? What is it gonna look like? Well, we're gonna be shaped into the image of Christ, and if we start to look at this passage, Jesus actually demonstrates and shows us what that image looks like through his life, through his interpretation of this passage. And he gives us a few illustrations of what this transformation is going to look like, milepost markers. The first one is that we will strive to live peaceably with others. That's both illustrations. That's a common theme. Reconcile relationships, make right injustice. This doesn't mean that everyone you meet will reciprocate a desire to live peaceably. But as much as it is up to us, we will remove the roadblocks to reconciliation. If there is someone in our lives that we have been struggling to live peaceably with, how and, and are we removing those roadblocks to reconciliation? What's the second milepost marker that he's gonna give of this transformed life? We will reorient our heart outward instead of inward. What does that mean exactly? So the focus of both illustrations is to resolve not our problems, our anger, but the sources and the causes of anger in the lives of others. We are focused on others through these illustrations. In verse 25, Jesus goes a little bit further even. We'll go back to it and take a look. It says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. 
that statement, come to terms, if you were to literally translate it and ask, what is the very wooden meaning of that in the original language, it would be make friends quickly. Come to terms, make friends quickly. And who is it exactly, and, and what is the idea behind the accuser? Another way it might be translated in your Bible is opponent. The base idea behind that word is enemy, our enemy. We will seek to come and make friends quickly with our enemies while we are going with them to court. And remember, this is not because we're forced to, this is because we desire to. When I, when I say enemy, that's a tough word for us. There might be someone that came to your mind immediately when I said that. Maybe you're worried because you're gonna see them Thursday. What would it look like to strive for us to make friends quickly with them? To care about when we have caused them hurt and injustice. What's the third milepost marker? So the first two was strive to live peaceably with others, reorient our heart outward instead of inward, and the last one is we will treasure unity. That might have been, not have been one that you picked up right away from the passage, so where is that coming from exactly? Well, the law that he's talking about, do not murder. That's a command for a prohibition. He's saying, do not do this action. But what is the inverse? What is the action we should do? What is it that we should be doing? Well, what is the opposite of being angry with each other? What is the opposite of saying and insulting your brother? What is the opposite of saying you fool to someone else? See, each one of those actions is breaking down the relationship. It's causing division between us, disunity, and the opposite is unity. Reconciliation, make friends quickly with your enemy. Do we treasure unity? Is unity so important to us that we would stop whatever we're doing, we'd set down our payment for taxes to go and reconcile with a brother? that we would seek unity more than we would seek our next meal. We would put off eating dinner so that we can go and, and create unity. Do we treasure unity like Jesus does? As we conclude this time together this morning and come to a close, I hope you don't view these questions and these milestones of the transformation as more rules you need to follow. But that they would provide for us a moment to reorient our hearts. To seek a righteousness that is beyond simply do not murder, a righteousness that surpasses even the Pharisees, a righteousness that only one person has ever achieved, and into whose image we are being shaped. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time together this morning. 
And I just pray that uh, as this message sinks in and as this week moves forward, things like Thanksgiving can be such a difficult time for relationships. There can be so much division. I pray that you would take this message and use it to transform us. That we would, we would not see the law of do not murder as, as the rule that we came in here saying, I got this one handled, no problem. That we would look at it and say, what is your heart in that? And where are you taking us and shaping us and transforming us into as we follow after you? Father, we turn to you as our only source of righteousness and we're being transformed into your image and we thank you for that. Guide us through this process. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're leaving this morning, I pray that you would be blessed and transformed as we reorient our heart towards Christ. That this week, as we go out and head towards Thanksgiving, that we would look for those milepost markers of that transformation in our lives and what it looks like to live out as this image of Christ through our lives. I pray that God would bless you in this transition and that he would create a moment during this week that we would be able to reflect on our hearts and see where we are at with reconciling with those people around us. May you be blessed this week. Go and have a a wonderful Thanksgiving.